Good morning. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Jay's with a quick one, with a fun one, with a pitcher's duel last night coming out on the right side of a 2-1 decision against the Philadelphia Phillies. Yet another tremendous performance from Yusei Kikuchi. He goes six innings, doesn't walk a batter, doesn't allow a home run. The regularity with which we're saying that is astonishing given where Yusei Kikuchi was last year, what his first four seasons, four and a half seasons, even in the pros uh, on the American side had been like where he was even in May. Six innings, no walks, no home runs. One earned over four hits. And even that one earned maybe one mistake pitch, one hard hit ball, the bottom of the order combining for a, a single and a double Sosa and Rojas uh, teaming up there. But the big bats in the order got nothing. Kikuchi also strikes out seven. If you're looking at his last six games now, 129 ERA. Even if you don't think that's legitimate, if you if you prefer something like FIP, fielding independent pitching, which kind of narrows things down to home runs, walks, and strikeouts, it's not my favorite stat, but some people like to use it as a, is this guy getting lucky? Well, it's 215. So even if you're saying he's getting a little lucky, you're saying, well, he should have been only excellent and not Pedro Martinez for the last six games. Uh, he's thrown 35 innings over those six games, so almost six per start, 36 strikeouts, to eight walks. That's a four and a half to one ratio. And for the first time, second time rather, in his career, including when he was in the bullpen, six consecutive outings without a home run allowed, easily by ERA or game score, whatever you choose, the best six start stretch of his career. Phillies, other than those two youngsters at the bottom of the order, had nothing for him. Slider was working for swing and miss. Fastball was well-placed, consistently throughout the game curveball inducing a lot of weak contact in the air. Like we talked to Michael Bauman about yesterday. It was really great. He turns it over after six to Jimmy Garcia. Nice seventh Jordan Hicks, who struck out the side and was popping the radar gun like crazy. He does a clean eighth. And then Jordan Romano returns, sees Jordan Hicks radar readings. is like, Hey, what if I dial it up to a hundred as well? He gets the save in the ninth, striking out the final batter of the game. Now, it looked like Yusei Kikuchi might be doing a Kevin Gosman at some point yesterday. He left that game six terrific innings, down one nothing. In the bottom of the sixth, Jace took the loss off the board for Kikuchi at least. George Springer with a, a soft contact single through the middle to score a run, score with Merrifield. And then in the eighth, Kevin Biggio has uh, one of the highest leverage hit by pitch you're going to see. Bases loaded. The the play prior, bases loaded. Nathan Lucas out at home. Uh, a great play by Alec Bohm to throw across his body, uh, running kind of toward the first base side, coming over from third base, uh, turning across his body to throw home, get the bang-bang play, get Nathan Lucas out at home there. It was really close. Nathan Lucas, by the way, pinch hit for Paul DeYoung, had a 10-pitch walk to start that inning. Really great stuff from Nathan Lucas there. Uh, so it rolls around. There's the out at home. You're thinking, oh, no, maybe they are once again going to squander bases loaded, one out. So they didn't get a hit with runners in scoring position there, but Kevin Biggio takes one off the toe, scores the go-ahead run. It would end up being the difference. Uh, that hit by a pitch, by the way, 
the third highest win probability added of any hit batsman in baseball this year. There are two instances where a player got hit in the ninth in games that were uh, tied or one run games. So they just the way win probability added works. The ninth is always going to be a, a little more leverage than the eighth. But yeah, Kevin Biggio with about as high leverage hit by a pitch as you can get. So the Jays win that one two to one. There were also a bunch of updates yesterday. We'll take you through them here because if you caught them pregame, some of them need re-updating. Obviously, the headline item was Jordan Romano returning. Nate Pearson was optioned down to Buffalo as the corresponding move. Romano looked great. Matt Chapman and Danny Jansen were both absent from the lineup. Danny Jansen was available if needed, but given how many pitches he's been hit with lately, the general wear and tear of being a catcher, they opted to use Monday's off day and the game Tuesday to just get him a little bit of extended rest here. Matt Chapman's still dealing with right middle finger inflammation uh, from a dumbbell incident who among us hasn't been there. Uh, he, that is obviously on his throwing hand. So there's a concern there. And then of course, uh, gripping a bat and swinging if your finger is in disrepair wouldn't be the most comfortable. Neither of those players are expected to need an IL stint. Who is on the IL, though, is Bo Bichette. He was supposed to start a rehab assignment with Buffalo yesterday as the designated hitter. The plan was then for him to progress to playing shortstop today. Yesterday's Buffalo Bisons game got rained out. So that is getting bumped back a day. Bo will DH today is the expectation in a 1 o'clock Bisons game. We don't know from there yet. Will he play shortstop for Buffalo Thursday? Will they just bring him up to Cincinnati to meet the team Friday and see how it goes? Um, some of this obviously depends on how his knee responds, running the bases and things like that. But everything's pushed back a day because of the rain out. Trevor Richards, who is only expected to miss the minimum or close to it, was also supposed to pitch in that Buffalo game yesterday. That will get bumped presumably to today. And Chad Green... Nice bit of good news. He had cleared concussion protocols after taking that throw down to second off the head from Tyler Heineman uh, about a week ago. So Chad Green is active now. He was expected to pitch an inning or two yesterday and notable there just from a procedural standpoint that the clock restarts on his 30-day rehab assignment. So if you're looking ahead to who's coming out of the bullpen and when, uh, you can kind of maybe push things back to that September 1st roster expansion date. Of course, you also have a couple of guys in Genesis Cabrera and Jay Jackson and Bowden Francis who have options if you need the space as well. Uh, the one other injured player of note is Kevin Kiermeyer. He was doing just about everything pregame yesterday. Uh, took some batting practice, working in the field, throwing. He has not had the stitches removed from his elbow yet, but that is uh, the last step to clear. It does not sound like he'll require a rehab assignment. It's a lot of updates and a lot of non-updates. We'll keep an eye on that Buffalo Bisons 1 p.m. start. Of course, our show only goes until 12, so uh, you can tune into Blair and Barker later for more. We will have it. I'm, I'm on the call with Ben Schulman again on the radio side for the game tonight. Surely we'll walk you through all that after we get the updates from John Schneider and see what happened in the Buffalo Bisons game. Tonight's game is going to be another potential pitcher's duel. Kevin Gosman on the hill for the Toronto Blue Jays, working with a little bit of extra rest here from the six-man rotation and the off days. We know that, not universally, but generally, Kevin Gosman has pitched better with a little extra rest, so that'll be interesting to watch, see how he does against a, a Phillies lineup that Kikuchi was able to neutralize. He'll be opposed by Aaron Nola, who has a 449 ERA, but 
Nola has a really long track record of being an effective starter, um, you know, generally settling in in the threes for ERA. He's got 370 ERA uh, over the years. Pretty darn good considering he's uh, he's managed to stay as a starter that entire time as well. And all with one team drafted by the Phillies in the first round back in 2014, uh, debuted in the majors in 2015 and has kind of stuck with them. Not kind of. He has stuck with them all the way since. So probably someone who means a lot to Phillies fans right now. We're going to see how the Jays handle that because his 449 ERA, while it is what it is, and it's up a little bit from where we expect Aaron Nola to be, some of the underlying metrics are still pretty confident that Nola's, you know, at worst a four ERA guy. He's striking out fewer batters, but still enough. He's walking a few more batters, but still not very many. He's had some, we'd say at a macro level, some misfortune with the long ball, but also possible he's just been a, a little meatball prone. We'll dive into that a little further in the show with Alex Coffey of the Philadelphia Inquirer. In the second hour, we'll also talk to Ricky Romero. He was at Batista weekend, of course, catch it up with all his guys. He's also got some thoughts uh, on Yusei Kikuchi's turnaround here, and he's always got an eye on the Blue Jays. Um, Arden Zwelling is going to join us around 1030. You need to find the inside reporting on just how wet he got from the water bath yesterday. And momentarily here, Ryan Goins is going to join us. If you were scoreboard watching the last couple days, you would have saw on Monday that the Kansas City Royals did the Blue Jays little bit of a favor, blowing a game in the ninth inning and then coming back in the bottom of the ninth with a squeeze bunt uh, where old friend Samad Taylor comes across as the winning run. Yesterday, they tried to do it again. They were hammered by the Mariners. Bottom of the ninth, they score three runs to send it to extras. Looked like maybe another uh, cardiac win for this Royals team that would help the Blue Jays a little bit in the wildcard standings. It did not play out that way. They, they came up a little bit short. Um, Dyron Blanco just, uh, you know, can't, can't throw the bunt down this time. Doesn't come up in the, in the right situation for it. Uh, so the Mariners won. And we say that because, uh, if our, we're looking at the little standings update, Seattle remains two back of Toronto, Boston, three back, uh, the Yankees have fallen all the way to 500. So they're six and a half back the angels, eight back and Cleveland, eight and a half back. So the Jays getting some separation for everyone except Seattle and Boston. Maybe the Kansas City Royals can do the Blue Jays another favor uh, today as they and tomorrow. They've got a four game set with the uh, with the Mariners here. Uh, If you're looking ahead in the standings, Jays closed Baltimore's lead to seven and a half. They remain four back of Tampa. They remain two back of Houston. Uh, So maybe the Kansas City Royals will help you out with the Seattle Mariners the next two days. Let's talk to someone who is technically on the the triple a roster of the Kansas city Royals uh, affiliate, but has mostly transitioned to a coaching role. We're going to ask him a lot about that, but we got to ask him about Jose Batista weekend. First, that's former Toronto blue Jay, Ryan Goins. Ryan, good morning. How are you? Yeah. How you doing? I'm good, man. Thanks for coming on. Uh, how was the weekend? Oh, it was great. You know, it was good to be back in the city. Uh, you know, awesome ceremony on Saturday and then just getting to, to see all the guys, you know, that was, uh, it was a good little reunion for us. Now, am I, did I see right that you were with Batista when he, you know, got the, the diamonded out pendant? Like you went on the jewelry store trip with him? No. Well, that was when we were leaving. That was on Monday. Okay. We, were, we were about to leave and I actually was going by and then I got there and he was there. So, uh, I got to see it with the chain on and everything. So <laughs> it, was, it was pretty cool. 
That's uh, it's loud. Yeah, I, had, I hadn't seen it, just a picture. It was, it was, it was sick though. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. <laughs> it's awesome. Uh, so what else, what else did you, you know, uh, what stood out to you most about the, the ceremony on Saturday? I know you joined the radio broadcast booth and talked about it a, a little bit as well, but you know, you, you were a part of those teams. You played with Jose Batista. Uh, what stood out to you most about the way the Jays honored Batista or just what the reaction was to that day in general? Yeah, I mean, one, just the ceremony was great. You know, they do a good job. I remember playing there. You know, we always had kind of, there was a couple of times a year where they did, like, you know, alumni coming back or, you know, there was some kind of ceremony. And you always see how, how good job they did. And then seeing it from behind the scenes and actually being a part of it, it was like, man, these guys, they put in a lot of work. You know, the, the ladies that work down below the stadium with the team and do all the social media and all that stuff, they put in a ton of time and, and they do an awesome job. And then, you know, the fans, the fans haven't changed. I mean, they're, they're still unbelievable. So when you look back at that era, you were on those teams 2013 to 2017. Um, if you're thinking about, you know, your favorite memories about Batista as a teammate or being a part of those teams, is the bat flip top of the list or is there some more under radar stuff that, that kind of stands out to you? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's hard to say. It's not number <laughs> one, right? It's one of the, I mean, even with, with Joe Carter's walk off the world series, it's going to be one of the biggest swings in the, uh, in the team's history, kind of in the in the country's history, in the fans' history, you know, it's just uh, one of those moments. And then, I mean, look where it's gone now. It's almost gotten out of control. Where that moment was so big, like it called for that kind of bat flip, and now we're to the point where, you know, we're hitting homers in May and ten to one games, and it kind of started the uh, it kind of started the bat flip era. Luis Robert Jr. had a good one last night. Turned his back to the pitcher to, to drop the bat after a, a no-doubter. Um, so you were a big part of, of those teams, obviously. When you look back on 2015 and, you know, you're on the other side now, you're in the Royals organization, which uh, I'm sure was an adjustment at first. Um, when you look back on those 2015 teams, do you feel like you guys were the best team in baseball that year, even even though it didn't work out in the ALCS? I really do. You know, I mean, and even talking with guys over here that, you know, coaches that have been around a while, like, we had the better team. It's just, you know, little things here and there uh, is the reason they beat us. You know, they didn't, they didn't strike out a lot, put the ball in play, they ran the base. You know, they did a lot of little things. And, uh, I mean, they were a good team as well. It's just, you know, that bullpen, you get to that bullpen the seven days and nights that they had, and it was almost game over, you know, when you look back at it. And that was, you know, those guys at the top of their game at that time. Um, but overall, I, I think we did have the best team. And you know how it is. Only one team can take home the trophy. And it wasn't us, which sucked. And I, and I wish we could do it over again. And I think it would be different. So fast forward down the line a little bit, and, and I agree with you. I think it would be different. I think you guys play that series out a bunch of times, and you're going to come out on top uh, more often than not. Uh, fast forward a little bit. So you, you leave the Blue Jays organization. You end up with Kansas City in 2018, and, and I know you're back with them now. But initially, was there like any part of you when Kansas City calls you up, you're like, ooh, I don't know, man, the Royals. I, I, I've got some bad memories there. I didn't love it, you know, obviously. <laughs> It was how my personality is. I'm always talking trash to people, so they love they like to throw that one back in my face. But uh, no, it was good. It was good. It was a good place for me to go. 
you know, after leaving, I didn't, not wanting to leave Toronto was the hardest part. And then from there, you kind of got to just think about yourself and try to put yourself in the best situation. And uh, it just so happened to be with them, with the relationship that I had with their front office. So, um, yeah, they just, they just kind of had the best situation for me and that you kind of have to do that for yourself at that point. Which is completely uh, understandable. And you are back there now. So you spent the last couple of years in the Braves minor league system. We found out in January you'd signed uh, a player contract, um, a minor league deal with the Kansas City Royals. And you've been on the AAA Omaha roster all year, but you haven't played. Can you tell us a little bit about what this kind of hybrid player slash coach role you found yourself in is like? Uh, it's great. Uh, it's not really a, a role that's around, but it's just kind of an understanding we had that, you know, I was hired late. They couldn't get me on the coach's payroll. So they're like, hey, we'll pay you in this manner and you'll just coach, right? You know, and that's what I wanted to do. That's uh, where I was at. So I, I don't mind it. I mean, it's just basically the, the, the pay just goes in six months instead of 12. And, you know, I do I do all the work during the day. Uh, is so I, I know your your focus and your interest and your passion right now is on the coaching side. Is there like a one percent chance we see you just get into a game just just for the kicks of it at some point this year? No, there's a less than zero percent chance to do that. <laughs> Um, okay, so what what has the transition to, to coaching been like? I, I know you've said that, you know, you're kind of focused on the defense and base running stuff, um, but this is really, you know, I, I know you've done some some youth coaching stuff, but jumping into a triple-A environment as a coaching level, that's a, a pretty big adjustment in your first year out of active play. What, what has that been like for you? It's been great, you know. Um, There's one thing that, that I went into coaching with, I was like, coaching's never done. You know, like, I don't care what level it is. If it's Little League, AAA, and even the big leagues, like, if you're a coach, you're going to coach. And I guess that's how I've always gone about it. Um, and I think with my resume defensively, right, a lot of people can look me up or they know who I am or whatever. So it's easier for guys to, to gravitate towards me, I guess, with, in that sense. So, uh, it's been a good transition. I love it. And uh, hopefully one day it leads to me managing. I was going to ask about that. I know you mentioned it on the radio broadcast that, hey, maybe 10 years from now or something like that. It, at what point in your career did you start thinking, hey, you know what? I, I would love to be on the coaching or managing side sometime down the line. Uh, always, honestly. Uh, I mean, baseball is all I've ever done, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm a, a baseball lifer and I just want to stay in the game and and keep doing it. So, uh, yeah, hopefully less than 10 years to manage. That's a long time <laughs> now, but, uh, you know, if we, if we look that far down the road, I hope I, I have been managing already in 10 years, but, uh, yeah, I've, I've always known that I wanted to stay in the game or be around sports. So it really wasn't a, it wasn't a tough transition. I didn't feel confused or, you know, those times where you don't know what you're going to do. It was something that I, I had kind of known. And then, Last couple of years in Atlanta, I was the oldest guy on the team, and you kind of, you kind of try to you know start working with guys or you know taking guys under your wing and, and just showing them how to be a pro. 
you've also had some some pretty good managers yourself, of course, playing under uh, Ned Yost, Rick Renteria, and then John Gibbons here in Toronto. Uh, how much how much of your managerial style do you think would be like John Gibbons informed? I don't know. I don't know if you're cracking beers in the manager's office or anything like that. Um, but what lessons were you able to pick up from the guys that you played under over the years? Yeah, I think I mean, the managers that I had, I think I'll be closest to Gibby, honestly. <laughs> I mean, he was the easiest manager to play for. Let you go out, do your thing, be you. But at the same time, if something needs to be said, he wasn't afraid to say it. And it wasn't, and he wasn't afraid to say it to whoever. If it was me or Pilar or Batista or Donaldson or Tula, it didn't matter. If something needed to be said, he addressed it. You know, it was, he wasn't afraid of those guys. Uh, and he went with his gut a lot. I know numbers are big in the game, and, and that's awesome. And we're working to have the you know teams try to have the best analytics department there is. But there's still a piece of this game that is is not quantified by numbers, right? And I think Gibby did a great job at, at what he did and just let the guys be themselves. So with your role in the Royals organization at, on that AAA team, uh, there have been a couple of guys who have graduated from Omaha to the Kansas City Royals uh, this year. Samad Taylor, uh, you know, kind of chief among them here because he was a former Blue Jays prospect. Michael Garcia, who, who's, you know, been a, a kind of a stolen base machine for them. Um, how cool has that been for you? I, I know, you know, you've been in AAA before. You've helped young guys. But now you're a part of this organization on the coaching side and you see guys able to go up and sure I, I know that Royals team is very much rebuilding right now but a Samad Taylor you know pulling a Dalton Pompey the other night with the pinch run and then scoring a, a game winning run how cool are little moments like that for you yeah it's cool anything you can do along the way to help those guys it's cool and then seeing them go up and getting to have a little bit of playing time and success is great um you know, there's they are there are some talented players here. It's just putting that all together and making a team out of it. You know, it's the hardest part. But um, you know, getting to see the guys go up and down, getting to see the struggle. I I think just trying to help them on the mental side, right? I mean, it's so easy when the game is going good and you get called up, but nobody sees the downside of what happens when you come down and and how that can affect guys mentally, right? And being someone who was really good at times and really bad at times. I think my mental game helped me a lot to stay in the game as long as I did. And I try to pass those things down to those guys, just trying to help them along the way. Uh, I don't know how much you get to keep an eye on the Blue Jays, but being around here a little bit this weekend, the odd time maybe you, you see them with Omaha, um, you know, their their minor league system, or, or if you're just peeking out of interest given your connection to this city, um, what is your kind of high-level take of where this Blue Jays team is at? And, and what did you see from them this weekend? Yeah, I mean, I don't just I don't pay attention daily, obviously, but you know I always want to see them win. I always want to see them in the playoffs. Just what what that what that stadium turns into and in, in, in high leverage games and playoff games, it's it's fun to just watch and, and kind of relive on myself while watching those games. Right, like last year, even watching the wild card against Seattle. I know it didn't work out the right way, but just seeing the electricity of the stadium again and how big the game has, has grown since our time, right? I feel like when I first got called up, we didn't really have a fan base, and then it turned into something crazy. And then coming back this weekend and, and seeing the stadium full, you know, an hour before the ceremony was 
was pretty awesome to see. But I think they're in a good place. You know, not everybody can be in first place. Hmm. You know, you're going to go through you're going to go through peaks and valleys throughout the year, and we did it in 15. We were what was it 50 and 51 at a time, and then we ended up going 41 and nine or something like that. The rest of the year, it's just you're going to hit your highs, you're going to hit your lows. You just want to be playing your best baseball at the end of the year. I mean, even in 16, we were playing well, and then September, I think we didn't even win 10 games. We made the playoffs in the last day of the season, and then make it back to the ALCS again. I mean, you can't. Nobody can tell what's going to happen in a playoff series or what moment might flip the momentum of a, of a season. I think they're staying around in a good spot and they're, you know, they're holding on to the, what, the third wild card right now. I mean, not that far behind everyone else. And, uh, and Hey, your Royals doing them a bit of a favor on Monday night with a, a big comeback win in the ninth and then almost an extra innings one uh, yesterday. So we'll be rooting for the Kansas city Royals as well as awkward as that feels here in Toronto uh, the next couple of days against the Mariners. Ryan Goins, thanks so much for taking the time out, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, guys. Ryan Goins, former Toronto Blue Jay, now a member of the coaching staff at AAA Omaha, the Kansas City Royals affiliate, uh, that Royals team. Again, doing the Jays a favor Monday, almost doing it again yesterday with a handful of guys in key roles who have come up from that Omaha team that Goins is a part of of the staff or unfortunately as Gohan's told us even though he's technically a player a less than zero percent chance he gets into uh game action for omaha this year uh two more for the royals against the mariners as the jays hope to put a little more space between themselves and the last team out in the wild card jays will get it going again tonight at seven o'clock nola against gosman we're gonna take a break go down to the stadium talk to arden zwelling uh who nearly Got a piece of that water bath that Jordan Romano received last night. Uh, we'll touch on some of these AAA updates as well and see where Arden's confidence level is on Yusei Kikuchi, who has a 129 ERA over his last six starts with 36 strikeouts to just eight walks and zero home runs allowed. Uh, Arden Zwelling joins us next as Jay Stock Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That is not the song. Lance, I don't know what that is. I don't know. That is not my vibe. I, I don't know what's going on there. Um, Jays win last night, two to one, a, a tight one down at Rogers Center. Pitchers duel looked like Yusei Kikuchi might be a hard luck loser for a little while there. Kevin Biggio comes up with a game winning RBI hit by pitch. And then the returning Jordan Romano closes things out, pops the radar gun in a big way a couple times, gets some nice swing and miss on nasty sliders and then gets the post-game interview and water dump treatment that almost caught our next guest, Arden Zwelling of Sportsnet. Uh, man, it looked like you got out of the way of that thing at the last second. Uh, yeah, I'm usually pretty good at darting out at the very last uh, second. Vlad's pretty good at keeping it mostly concentrated on uh, the interview subject as well. 
<laughs> uh, so Jordan Romano did come back, looked pretty great in that. I didn't get to hear what your post-game interview with him was like because I, I still had the, the headset on and was on air. Um, but, man, I, I imagine Romano told you he felt very, very good because the radar readings and how that slider looked would suggest he felt very good. Yeah, he was fired up. Um, I sometimes like hesitate to even put him in those spots because like, we just don't even understand how intense closers are hmm. and just the mentality they carry to the mound and how um, invested and just, I guess, stimulated that they are when they're on the mound. So it's kind of tough to go straight from that compete mode into talk to Arden mode. Uh, but he, he was, yeah, he, he was feeling good. It's obviously, you look at the, the velocity and the command on the slider. You know, in, in, in August, if you give a guy like two and a half weeks off from throwing and some time to recover and rehabilitate and work on some things, pretty funny they come back looking uh, a lot better than when they were grinding through the season prior well that makes you wonder what things could look like for a trevor richards when he comes back or if someone else has to you know take a turn down as the roster crunch comes uh we'll spin to some of those triple a updates and non-updates in a minute here arden um, but last night to set the table for romano coming in and garcia and hicks were both popping good velocity numbers uh, on their way to uh, a win in Hicks's case and uh, a good inning for Garcia. But Yusei Kikuchi was the headline item. Another outing with six good innings, only one earned run. Uh, Dave Steeb and I'm drawing a blank on the other name. The only two guys who have done six straight outings as Blue Jays with one earned run or fewer. Close, probably. I don't know if it's coming. I thought it was someone more recent. I will I will have someone look at that while I uh, finish this sentence. Um, so, I mean, look, we we all have known for a long time that Yusei Kikuchi has great stuff, and we've seen it for glimpses. He had half a year that got him an all-star berth at one point. But to see six consecutive starts at this level with both the command and the limiting hard contact, um, how, not surprised, but but... How meaningful is it to you that Kikuchi's been able to reach and sustain this level over a really extended stretch of time here now? Yeah, it's been cool just to watch the process over the last year and a half because Kikuchi obviously arrived at the Blue Jays with some pretty tremendous raw materials, uh, but the, they were, it took a lot of sculpting to kind of get those all in the right place and everything working together and, and produce the, the total, total package that you're seeing now. So the, the Blue Jays have done a ton of work with him on his delivery and on efficiency on the mound, simplifying things, his arm slot, his release point. They've obviously done a ton of work with him on his pitch mix and adding and subtracting pitches, throwing the cutter less, adding that curveball this year. He tried to develop a sweeper over the offseason, and that didn't take. Um, they've done a, work with, a lot of work with him on, on his body and on his routines in between outings so that he can um, maintain the velocity that we're seeing. They've done a lot of work with him mentally and on mindset, approach, um, thinking on the mound. Or, I mean, I think right now the big benefit for him is a lack of thinking on the mound. They've done a lot of work with him in terms of catcher set up and how his games are called and how his pitches are received, the lanes that he's attacking, where he's throwing his pitches, just letting his stuff eat, throwing it right down the middle and letting the natural action on his pitches carry it to the edges where he can get swing and miss and soft contact. So that there are Pete Walker gets a lot of credit for this and he should, but he's really just the tip of the spear that the, the Blue Jays have uh, really been working with Yusei Kikuchi over the last 18 months to get him to where he's at right now. And Arden, the answer, the other person who's done it was pandemic year Hyunjin Ryu. 
So uh, I, I think we can all be forgiven for not remembering anything from that season, really. Uh, but he had a, a good run there. And then technically Wilmer Font, but those were all as openers. So um, that one doesn't count. You, you mentioned a lot there with what Kikuchi's been able to do. Um, I'm curious what you would most attribute to this ability he has now the ground ball rate is up over this stretch as well which is great but this ability to use the breaking balls to induce weak contact in the air where there was a long time where anything in the air with for Yusei Kikuchi looked dangerous and you didn't want him getting fly ball outs and now it's you know can of corn after can of corn these last couple starts and it's been primarily with the breaking ball is that just the keeping hitters off balance thing is there something special going on with his curveball there that that guys are getting under it so often I think they're just working well in concert with one another. I think that his plan has been really good in terms of how he's pitching to hitters first and second trip through. I think that his in-game adjustments have been really good. I noticed a lot of that on, on the bench last night, just you know, from my privileged position being right there next to the dugout. I, I saw a lot of Kikuchi talking to Alejandro Kirk, talking to Pete Walker, Pete Walker talking to Alejandro Kirk, just about some different things that they wanted to do throughout the course of the evening based on the swings that they were seeing from Philadelphia hitters and based on the reactions. And I mean, it must be said, strike throwing and just attacking. And, um, you know, even when Kikuchi still has a, a sort of a bout of wildness and maybe he walks somebody on four pitches that fifth pitch to the next batter is right back in the zone uh he is correcting really quickly on the mound and he's not letting things spiral like they did in the past he's always going to be a bit effectively wild to an extent but if he can avoid those back-to-back walks those uh you know hit by pitch sandwiched by walks those types of innings Hitters have to respect his stuff, and they have to be in swing mode a lot more than they have been in the past. And I think that's when you start getting some more of that weak contact that, that you're talking about because hitters can't just kind of zone up and say, well, if I, if this guy gets, if I get ahead of this guy, I know he's going to use his cutter to try to get back into this count because it's the pitch he's most confident in landing. I can zone up that cutter in the spot that he typically throws it and hit it very hard and, and very far. He's, he's just taken that option away from hitters. So Arden, down the stretch here, and we're, we're a little bit away from these decisions still uh, about six weeks or so, but you and I talked last Wednesday when we were kind of lining up hypothetically what the five-man rotation would look like during this stretch with a couple off days and that big Baltimore series coming up. And we had both kind of landed on, yeah, I think Kikuchi against a lefty-heavy team like Baltimore, against in a ballpark that suppresses right-handed power like Baltimore's, he made sense in that series. And he's going to line up. If they don't juggle things, he'll start the opener of that series next Tuesday. Um, do you think there's an element down the stretch here of, look, Gosman and Brios are, are probably pretty secure in their spots, but a little bit of internal competition, maybe helping push guys, you know, not that they maybe they don't need it this close to the playoffs, but that little bit of internal competition for potential playoff roles? Well, and we're getting to that point in the season where it really does become more of a meritocracy. It really does become more about who is on form right now. So, yeah, to your point, I think you're seeing that in the rotation where yeah, you say Kikuchi is somebody who you want starting a big game, which is a remarkable thing to say considering the conversations we would have been having on August 16th of 2022. But you're seeing that uh, on the position player side as well. You're seeing Paul DeYoung's playing time start to decrease a bit because he just hasn't had it at the plate 
recently. Obviously, there's there's more in there, and his track record will tell you that, but he's not producing right now, so you're seeing him out of the lineup more often. Kevin Biggio is on a great run recently, and you're seeing him in the lineup a lot more often. He's been in the lineup each of the last four games for the Blue Jays. This is a guy whose playing time was rather sporadic earlier this season. So you get down into late August, especially into September, it becomes about who is performing right now, who's confident, who has it together, and who has given us the best chance to win on any given night. It's no more of this, let's give this player runway to, to work through things, or let's let the, you know, the long sample speak for itself, because uh, there really isn't that much of a sample remaining. And DeYoung doesn't have the same path once Bo Bichette's back, but we went through this a little bit with Whit Merrifield after he was acquired last year, too, and the lesson was, hey, some guys will take an adjustment period before they get their feet back under them but DeYoung may not have that uh, you mentioned Kevin Biggio he drew two walks in addition to the game winning hit by a pitch yesterday that walk rate has always been a staple of his but for a good chunk of this season it wasn't there at all he went you know there was a time in I think late May where he had the worst walk rate on the team because I, I'd assume pitchers just weren't nibbling with him at all because they weren't that scared to go into the zone now that he's walking a bunch again some of that of course because he's he's hit for damage at times have you gotten to talk to Cavabigio at all about what that process has been like adjusting to pitchers kind of getting the book on him earlier this year 100 percent. and two walks by the way against Zach Wheeler yeah. who came in with like a four percent walk rate he hadn't walked two in an outing in his seven prior Oh. And Kevin Biggio walked twice against him. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just reacting with a, huh. Yeah, oh. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. No, I thought you had something. Yeah, he, 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 I mean, Kevin Biggio walked twice against him alone. And Dalton Varsha, by the way, worked a really nice walk against Wheeler as well. So, yeah, that's the, the approach that the Blue Jays have been, like, hammering their hitters on for the last several weeks. And some guys have taken to it better than others is, hey, like, take that borderline early count pitch, even if you think it might be called a strike take it don't make an out on that two seamer like in to a righty that is borderline or like um that change up away from a lefty that is uh, right right on the shadow zone like take that early in account maybe you get a ball maybe you get a strike either way you'll adjust but you need to force pitchers into the heart of the zone and you need to give them an opportunity to make a mistake quit making out so early in counts and you look at those walks that Biggio had against Wheeler. I mean, it's not like he was taking pitches that were a foot off the plate. I mean, these were borderline pitches away from him that he was taking. And his pitch recognition and his strike zone management and his understanding of the strike zone as it's being called by an umpire uh, are so elite, elite that he's able to take those walks. I think the big adjustment for him earlier this year was something that Victor Martinez told him in spring training, and that is to swing down with his hands in his swing. And I'm not a hitting coach. I can't tell you like all the particulars of what that is doing for him. But Biggio told me that once he thought about that swinging down with his hands, he said that helped him be on plane a lot more and be have a much flatter bat path through the zone, which means the barrel of his bat is through the zone a lot longer, which means he's able to get to different pitches. And even if he's not barreling them, he is fouling off uh, tough pitches and tough parts of the plate for him and extending his plate appearances so that he can take those walks so that he can run like the 380 OBP he's got since the middle of May. Um, I think that's been big 
for him. Let's cut down on the swing and miss, and let's force pitchers to respect him a bit more and pitch him a lot differently than he has been. We used to see him kind of getting that steady diet of elevated fastballs earlier this year. He's not seeing that so much anymore. He's seeing a lot more spin and, and off speed down in the zone. I think about that homer that he hit off of Angel De Los Santos in Cleveland. That was like three straight change-ups down in the zone. Um, to triple up on your change-up in a spot like that against a lefty, that tells me that their scouting report was, hey, we're not beating this guy up in the zone anymore. we got to go spin off, be down. Kevin Biggio was able to exploit that. Even the the pitch that he was hit by, Sir Anthony Dominguez, you know, a couple months ago, you would have thought, oh, yeah, he's going to pound, you know, high 90s, high to Kevin Biggio. And he started now. He missed by a, lo- a long shot. Obviously, he hit him with the pitch, but started him with a, a breaking ball low. So uh, something to that in, in the Phillies game plan for sure. Earlier that inning, Arden, there was also a really good plate appearance from Nathan Lucas. And now there were a couple of pitches he fouled off that you know, maybe you want back because they were hittable pitches, but he was still able to work a nine pitch plate appearance, draw a walk, let everyone behind him see a lot from Sir Anthony Dominguez and put some speed on the bases. He came in as a pinch hitter there for Paul DeYoung. He had been used as a pinch hitter in like almost a month because there just haven't been situations where he was the top lefty on the bench or, you know, a day like yesterday where the bench is a little short. Um, what did you make of that decision to turn to Lucas in that spot? Does it tell you anything about Lucas or was it purely a Paul DeYoung decision? I could probably said more about Paul DeYoung if we're being really candid, Blake, but it's, it's always a good day when you get to shout out a guy like Nathan Lucas because he's just grinded all year he's been that up and down guy when he's been on the roster he hasn't played um he's been in that like 13th position player spot the blue jays have just kind of punted on and really haven't deployed at all throughout their season and it's really hard to find a rhythm and to find a routine when your plate appearances are so sporadic and like every couple weeks you're on the shuttle back to buffalo and trying to get back used to minor league life and then you back up to the majors on like a red eye because you know somebody got hit with a pitch and you're just trying to handle all of these things in your life and trying to find some consistency and rhythm to your routines and then you get thrust into a pinch hit spot against you know it's always going to be some tough nasty like high below fastball as a slider reliever late in the game when you're into those spots and to come in and you know I thought like Nathan Lucas like really as you mentioned got challenged early in that plate appearance and looked like he was ready to be challenged because he swung at the first two pitches that he saw and fouled them off. But then when he was 0-2, I mean, he didn't get in the hole. He did what we've seen a lot from guys like Whit Merrifield, kind of cut down the swing and really zoned up and, and really just worked an approach and battled and, and fought off a bunch of tough sliders, again, getting challenged in that in that plate appearance to the point where he was able to get Dominguez to, to get a bit wild and, and miss with a few and, and get on first base. I just thought that was a, such a tone-setting plate appearance and so, so, so much harder for a guy whose routines and rhythms just cannot possibly be there considering the role that he plays with this team. And look, that's obviously a a great plate appearance there and helped the Blue Jays win that game unquestionably. Uh, The nature of Nathan Lucas's life and role right now is that, hey, there are a couple guys coming off the IL soon and he could be right back down and who knows, maybe right back up when uh, rosters expand. But there is uh, a little bit of a crunch coming when 
a couple of guys get back. And Arden, I, I don't know if you got a chance to ask John Schneider about this post game or if there was even an answer, but there were a trio of Blue Jays who were supposed to get into a rehab game with Buffalo yesterday. Bo Bichette was set to DH yesterday and play shortstop today. Trevor Richards and Chad Green were both expected to get into that game as well. That game got rained out. Do we have an updated plan for what that's going to they're not playing two today last i saw uh they're just going to do the the 1 p.m afternoon game that was already scheduled would you just anticipate everything from yesterday to roll into today that is the plan is that what those guys were going to do on tuesday they're now going to do today so bo bichette will be DHing for buffalo and i think you'll see an inning plus from green and one inning from uh from richards where it gets interesting is where do you go from there? Because mm-hmm. as you said, they're not playing a doubleheader today. Not that you would be putting Bo Bichette into a doubleheader at this point anyway. Uh, but, you know, does he stay with Buffalo on Thursday and play shortstop there and then join the Blue Jays in Cincinnati on Friday? Does he skip that Thursday game, which was originally the plan, and just go straight to Cincy for Friday? I think the Blue Jays would like to see him play some shortstop before he returns to the majors because he still is very much testing things and, uh, you know, just figuring out just like what, you know how compromised he's going to be really for the rest of the year and what he's able to do and moving laterally and decelerating like a lot of those things um, that have been challenging for him. He needs to test them in a game environment when it's, it's not quite as controlled when you're just like running the bases at Rogers center and, you know, taking fungos from Louis Rivera. So it'll be interesting to see what they do on Thursday, but as for today, Bobachette's going to be DH and that's the plan. So, Bo Bichette potentially back this weekend. Trevor Richards potentially only missing the minimum. Kevin Kiermaier doesn't sound like he'll need a rehab assignment. Um, and if, it, if he does, it would probably be a very short one. And then at some point, Chad Green as well, whose 30-day clock resets now and he's cleared concussion protocol. Um, that is a hand. Look, some of this is going to be, well, the rosters expand again September 1st. So a couple guys who lose their spot might only lose it for a couple days, but someone is going to be the odd man out here, assuming nobody else uh, gets hurt again. Do you have, I, I know I asked you last week and you kind of joked, well, yeah, you're asking me the answer to impossible questions. Uh, I'm going to do it again. Given that Davis Schneider's playing time has gone down a little bit, um, you know, maybe there's an element uh, of you don't need three shortstops uh, and, and that's why Davis Schneider hasn't played a little bit lately because they need the third base and shortstop defense. But um, would Schneider's decline in playing time suggest to you he's maybe the move uh, when Bo comes back at, at least temporarily until rosters expand? Yeah, I'd, I'd say so. You look at Schneider and Lucas as guys on your bench who are optionable. And, you know, yeah, at this time, I think the Blue Jays are just going to do what makes the most sense, uh, preserving depth. So, uh, yeah, I think Schneider and Lucas are, are probably the two guys towards the end of the position player. Uh, side of things, and then on the pitching side of things, you know, Bowden Francis and Jay Jackson, two guys as well with options who have been up and down. Um, you know, those those are the most seamless moves to make, uh, unless there's going to be some sort of an IL situation. For you know, we know Matt Chapman's missed the last couple of games. Blue Jays aren't expecting putting him on the IL. You never know what's going to happen, and you know, Danny Jansen gets hit with a pitch every 45 minutes. So uh, <laughs> there's uh, you know a lot of different ways that can shake out. And then, as you said, in September. You get a couple more roster spots to play with, and, and I would expect the Blue Jays to maximize their roster with those. Yeah, am I remembering correctly that we saw Varsho in the catcher's gear at some point on the weekend? Yeah, they did get to that to that spot. They don't want to do that, and Dalton Varsho is playing a very important <laughs> role right now covering center field. For, leading uh, leading for, the league in defensive run saved? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he might lead the league in DRS at two different positions. 
center field and left field. That's really hard to do. I think Quan's got a pretty big lead on him in left, but I'm pretty sure Varsha would be in second or third. So, to, I mean, that's that's a counting statistic at two different positions. It's pretty impressive that he's that he's doing that. It is pretty impressive. Uh, Kevin Gosman on the hill tonight. He's a guy that we know statistically, and this isn't every time out, but the broader trend is when he gets a little extra rest, he's been even more effective. Is he the guy you could see benefiting the most from having gone through the six-man rotation in these couple of off days we have up here? Him and Chris Bassett. Definitely. Uh, and I would probably lump Jose Brios into that as well. It's another, it gets me back to like another really impressive thing about Yusei Kikuchi. Um, when's the last time you saw him take the mound with anything less than 95? <laughs> he, he just maintains his velocity so well, start to start. Like he clearly has very consistent and elaborate um, between starts routines. And he clearly takes his body very, very seriously and, and recovery and preparation and all of those things. And I think that stretches back to the off season with him as well, honestly. I mean, growing up in Japan, like, you know, Yusei Kikuchi is throwing like five bullpens a week and one of them was 300 pitches. And that's still something he does during the off season to these day, to this day, like in December and January, he'll throw 300 pitch bullpens at his home in Arizona. He used to do it at a facility, but it takes him like two and a half hours to do this. <laughs> And at the facility, they were like, dude, you got to get off the mound. we got other pitchers who need to throw here. So Kikuchi actually like built a mound in his backyard in Arizona. So this January, somewhere in Arizona, Yusei Kikuchi will be in his backyard throwing up 300-pitch bullpen. Uh, and this isn't a guy, by the way, who's just like easing the ball in there. He's got a very violent delivery, a ton of torque, a ton of whip, a ton of intensity and, and intent. Uh, you know, that nastiness that he pitches with, the, the life on his stuff, that comes from somewhere. Like, he is generating that from the ground up uh, with a delivery that ends with, like, a field goal kick. So there's a lot going on there, and it really does impress me that we never have that, oh, Kikuchi only has 92 today. Every time out, it is 95, 96. It's so, so impressive. We've seen from guys like Kevin Gosman, sometimes he's on the hill, and it's, oh, hey, Kevin Gosman throwing, like, 91-mile-per-hour fastballs today, clearly not feeling his best. And then his next time out, he'll be back up to 96, 97. Seen the same thing with Chris Bassett. Velocity fluctuated at times earlier this year before it found a, a more consistent place. You're seeing Hunjin Ryu right now really having to dig deep to try to find that velocity he pitched with prior to Tommy John. It's not the easiest thing to do, to just take them out every five days of really consistent velo. And uh, Yusei Kikuchi is doing that. And to answer your original question, yeah, Gosman, Bassett, Brios, those are the guys who are really going to benefit from extra rest right now. Yeah, the other guys should just do what Ryu does when the velocity is not there and have every pitch he throws only touch the strike zone by like one three hundredth of a millimeter. So everything's <laughs> technically a strike, but you can never decide to swing at it or put a good bat on it. Um, Arden, last one before I let you go, just on the Bassett front. I know him and Zach Wheeler, and Zach Wheeler was tremendous yesterday, so maybe that's a data point to change his mind. But those guys have talked about not really loving the routine changes with this. Do you put much stock into that or is that kind of, Hey, a starting pitcher wants to stay in routine, but this is, you know, they just don't, don't know what's best for them over the long haul or don't want to accept what is maybe best for them over the long haul. I feel like at this point in the year, any starting pitcher is going to be pretty happy to get an extra day. Like, do you mean they're not, they feel like it's too much time in between? Hours? Yeah. Like Zach Wheeler threw a second side session between starts this time. And like openly said, he'd rather pitch on four days rest at 80% than have the extra rest. Like a like direct quote from him to Matt Gelb of the athletic this week. 
Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I, I don't know about his situation. I think the Blue Jays pitchers would be you know, pretty okay with how things are, especially having gone through that stage where there was only four starters <laughs> in the rotation. And some guys, Chris Bass included, really could have used that extra day to let some physical things subside, and, and they weren't able to have that benefit. I think right now, this time of year, late August, like the doggiest of days, I think that, uh, you know, I don't think the Bay Blue Jays starters are going to be complaining too much about having an extra day. And I don't think we're going to have uh, Arden Zawell and complain about an off day Thursday for the uh, for the travel and then a, a wonderful off day on the road in, well, I don't know, I guess it'll be Cincinnati or Baltimore on Monday. Not sure where you'll be, but you'll be uh, with us for both of those road series. Thanks for taking the time out this morning, man. Uh, keep up all the great work. Enjoy the road. Happy to. Thanks, Blake. Arden Zwelling of Sportsnet. He will be our sideline reporter and analyst uh, for tonight's game and through those next two road series, at least. I have not looked at the schedule past that. Um, But that Baltimore one is a big one. We're going to take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk to Ricky Romero. We'll, uh, I I think this will be the closing the book on Jose Batista weekend, the the last player or, or coach from around that weekend that we'll talk to. But Ricky Romero, of course, always a great guest when it comes to analyzing pitching and a guy who keeps up with the Blue Jays uh, really well. We'll talk to him and then we'll talk to Alex Coffey of the Philadelphia Inquirer to set up tonight's game. Nola Gosman, 7 o'clock down at Rogers Center. Uh, Ricky Romero next as Jays Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL. The J.D. Bunkus Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Jays win 2-1. to one. They put two wins in a row on the board. Could not do it on Saturday for Jose Batista today, though. Uh, a man who was down there as part of those festivities joins us now. He's Ricky Romero, former Toronto Blue Jay, co-host of Talking Points with Ricky Romero and Stu Stone. Ricky, how are you, man? I'm doing good. How are you, Blake? I'm good. I, I got to add, before we get into the Batista stuff, the weekend stuff, uh, you were, I, I know on the, the show with Stu this week, you were reminiscing about your debut. When you see yourself back in those baby blue pullover jerseys, how do you feel about that look and whether there'd be a place for them now? Bring them back. That's the first thing I think about. <laughs> I mean, and, and I don't know if you remember, but I mean, I'm sure a lot of fans remember it was like what they would call flashback Fridays. And that's why we would wear them on Fridays. But Man, that's one jersey till this day I wish I would have kept. And I can't seem to find it anywhere because I, I feel like they, I think they auction them off. Or, um, but, you know, point being is that they're not in the clubhouse. And I, I, I've, always, I've always gone back and I've always asked, hey, do you guys have that baby blue jersey? Because I want it back. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I don't believe they have them anymore. But, man, like that, that's such a crisp, crispy look. I, I love the, that old school uh, logo, that old school um, I know they wear, you know, some similar colors with the with the baby blues nowadays. But I feel like that that blue just man, it just it's so classic. It's so cool, and the the V neck. I mean, it just made it so much better. Um, so yeah, I mean, if anything, the the material was a little heavy. I'm sure it, they'd be able to fix that quick. But man, that's the first thing I think about. I wish they'd bring those back. And yet that era was defined more by the, the black jersey and, and that particular J logo. You know, you, uh, Travis Snyder, Jose Batista, when he first joins the Blue Jays. Uh, so Batista ceremony this weekend, uh, high level. I mean, how, how fun was the weekend for you uh, before we get into some of the specifics? 
Oh man, Blake, I I mean I can't say enough of uh how above and beyond the Toronto Blue Jays went. Not not only just you know, for us but for Jose and just the whole production itself. I mean, they did an unbelievable job of of uh getting everyone together and and just the the party itself, right, on the field. I mean, the ceremony, everything about it was just so amazing. I didn't know we were going to get introduced one by one and, you know, just the ovations that you were going to one here and that, you know, that I got and stuff like that. It just, it was an amazing day, an amazing moment. I, I, I came back home and I told my wife, I was like, that was one of the coolest things I've ever done post-retirement, if not the coolest. Because I don't know, I mean, I hope that we, I mean, there's another, you know, I hope there's, other teammates of mine that hopefully get up there and I'm invited. So, um, but that was by far the coolest thing I've done uh, post-retirement as far as when it comes to the Toronto Blue Jays. So the, the chain that they gifted him, and I was talking to Ryan Goins about it a little earlier. Is that, is that too loud for you? Like, w- would you, would you rock something like that on a special occasion? Or is that too much? Heck yeah, man. I would <laughs> rock something like that. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, your name's up there for the rest forever. Forever, I mean forever, and and I feel like if if you're Jose Bautista, you rock that 19 with that, you know that that Blue Jay logo for special occasions. It's not an everyday wear, but for special occasions, I'm sure he'll be wearing a. Again, I mean above and beyond what the Toronto Blue Jays were able to do from, you know that 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 cool picture they dropped in the middle of the ceremony down in center field. That was really dope, um, and just everything about it. I mean, just you know, just like I said, you you hear the. The ovations for uh, for Edwin Encarnacion, for John Gibbons and Cito Gaston, and I mean, just this—it just felt like a playoff game all over again, right? I mean, it just felt like the stadium was shaking every time, you know, Jose, uh, whether he was emotional or when he walked out or when they announced, you know, when they dropped the drape for for his name and stuff like that. Everything about it—it it was just so cool. It was the energy, and it was amazing. So you were with the Blue Jays. During Batista's breakout, your rookie year was his first full season with the team as his second uh, season with the team after being acquired late 2008. And then late in 2009, something clicks and he starts hitting all these home runs. Then 2010 happens, obviously, franchise record 54 home runs. Do you remember late 2009 or early 2010, a point at which the rest of you guys started to take notice and, and like, oh, something's clicked here? Oh yeah, I mean, I, I I've told Jose this before. I, I we always when we sit there and we reminisce about old times. I just remember, I was like, man, if this guy's ever, I was like, one, why has this guy bounced around so many teams? Um, is there, you know, is, is there something going on there or what? And and then the more I got to know him, obviously, great teammate, guy that cared a lot. He just needed an opportunity to play every single day, and I don't think that he had gotten that up to that point in his career. And um, and I just remember always watching the behind the work, you know, behind the scenes and watching batting practice. And I'm like, man, if this guy ever gets an opportunity, he's going to be really, really good. I just, you know, hope he, he gets it here. And obviously he has that big time uh, uh, month in, at the end of the season in 2009. And then he just carries it over to 2010. And it just seemed like he was just a guy on a mission. Again, hard work, dedication, him in the computer room. I still remember it all the time. We'd sit there, we'd dissect, you know, where it was, whether it was pitchers, whether it was swings. And, you know, he, the, the cool thing about him is that he included everyone, like whether it was him and Edwin or sometimes I'd sit down there with him and he'd be like, what do you see or what do you think? And we sit there and we'd bounce stuff off each other. And I think he, the, the willingness to learn every single day, I mean, every single day he was in that computer room trying to get an edge on whoever was starting that night. 
And and I think it's just spoke volumes of, of the guy that he was and, and the, the guy that he wanted to be. And obviously 2010 was pretty magical. I mean, he took us all on that ride, right? I mean, we're sitting there in the dugout. I have front row tickets to, to the home run king, you know, and, and I remember, I still remember when he had that home run, uh, number 54 against Felix Hernandez. Uh, I believe, I believe it was on a weekend uh, day game. And I mean, Felix during that time was, you know, a tough task. I mean, he was on top of his game too. And, um, and I just remember, you know, just the emotions of that and just, you know, how much fun he was having with it. I mean, he was super loose about it and he was just going out there and just, you know, hey, you make a mistake, I'm going to make you pay, and I don't care if I hurt your feelings. And that's kind of how he went about it. He started getting a little bit of an edge to himself, and then obviously he went from, you know, Jose Bautista, the third baseman slash right fielder, to Jose Baut- to, to Joey Bats, and, <laughs> and and it was just it just kind of took off from there. So the reunion part of this weekend where you get to see all these ex-teammates, teammates that you maybe didn't cross over with, but obviously you have the Jays connection with. Um, I, I don't know how much you can share about what you guys got up to this weekend outside of the, the Saturday, uh, but how was that element of it? And uh, did you guys, you know, were there any golf rounds or anything like that? You can, uh, things you're allowed to share from the weekend, I guess. <clears throat> no, 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 no golf rounds. That's for sure. There, there was no golf rounds for me. I, w- I was in and out. I mean, get in Friday, got out Sunday. Ah. Uh, but you know, but, but, uh, I mean, I had some fun. I mean, seeing those guys and, you know, obviously you have some adult, adult beverages and, and stuff <laughs> like that and, and, and keep it, keep it cool. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm close to 40 years old. Like <laughs> I can't handle, a, a long nights anymore. Um, but it was, uh, it was good. It was great to see, you know, Travis Snyder, Ryan Goins, um, you know, uh, even though I didn't play with him, but I played a lot against him, Russell Martin and, um, hanging out with him and, Seeing, obviously, always seeing Edwin Encarnacion, Melky Cabrera, those guys is always fun. And Adam Lynn, I mean, holy man, I hadn't seen him in a while. So it, it was good to see. I mean, Gibby, Brian Butterfield, I mean, Dwayne Murphy, I mean, to see the, the old coaches and, 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 and just sit there and talk shop with them. And I mean, and just reminisce about the old times. And, you know, it's always a remember when moments, right? I mean, that's all we talk about. Remember when this happened. Remember when that happened. And it's like, it's funny how. We probably forget a lot of other things, but we know we know exactly where we were in certain baseball moments, and those are just unforgettable moments. And that's just what it's all about. I mean, at the end of the day, and you know, again, to see Jose being inducted into the level of excellence and just seeing the emotional part out of him, I think was was pretty surprising. I mean, I knew, I mean, obviously it was a big deal to him and everything like that, but to watch him get emotional and in front of so many people, I mean, it just. I think the, the the Toronto Blue Jays got him, and 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 it was it was it, they. I mean, he was. You can just tell there there was just so much so much emotion out of him, and I'm I'm glad he let it out. I'm glad the fans got to see that side of him because you know again you see Jose Bautista, intensity, fearless type of guy, and the fact that the fans got to see the, the you know the softer side of him and, and being emotional. I mean, shoot, I would be if 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 he cried like that, I'd be a big baby. If, <laughs> If my name ever went up, not that it's ever going to go up there, but, <laughs> but I mean, I just, you know, it, it was emotional for me. I mean, you know, when you, when you hear that speech, I, I kind of looked around and I saw Russ, you know, wiping a tear and, and, and I was like, well, okay. So yeah, it is okay to cry here. Cause I am like my, my eyes got watery and, you know, just him listening to him um, talk about his daughters and stuff like that. Obviously me being a father and, 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 and stuff like that. I mean, obviously you get emotional and just all the people he had to thank and, 
what they meant to him, I mean, was pretty special. How did, uh, this is a bit of a pivot, but, you know, since we're, we went to the fatherhood topic there, how did uh, the season of coaching end up? I know at one point you guys were playoff bound, but I don't think I got an update from you uh, at the end of the season. <laughs> Oh man, that's been long gone. I, I buried that a long time ago. And you're bringing up, you're you're bringing back old wounds. Now we I didn't know it was an old wound. I, I never heard. <laughs> we uh we ended up losing in the championship, which is a, a, one of the coolest uh, games I've ever been a part of. As far as the season went along, I mean we we I mean for eight year olds to have a I believe the score was seven five. I mean it was very low scoring. We played a lot of good defense and. You know, at the end of the day, at the end of the at the end of the season, I mean, I told them they achieved my goal of of being fundamentally sound, learning how to field the ball, learning how to throw the ball, learning how to catch the ball, getting out, and and we did that, and they bought in, and and I thanked them, and I mean, even that got a little emotional for me, just because I really, really cared for these kids, and I saw the emotion out of them uh, after we lost, and and the crying and stuff like that. It, it, it was cool. I mean, they they definitely touched my heart, and. It was a, an unforgettable season, and I already can't wait to coach again next season. That's that's awesome to hear. I got to talk to Travis Snyder about his coaching experience a little bit, too. I know you guys have some uh, NFC West stuff to, to sort out, but uh, maybe some, <laughs> some coaching synergies there. Uh, Ricky, I wanted to pivot to the, the current Blue Jays team a little bit. Yusei Kikuchi with another tremendous outing last night. I know, you know we look back to your 2009 or your 2011. Uh, you had some pretty good stretches where you were in a zone over six, seven starts. Um, what is that feeling like where, with Kikuchi, you know, obviously not not in his brain, but the fact that he has been up and down in his career, that, that he's struggled at times, but has now really found a groove and it's start after start over the course of uh, a month, six weeks here. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you just see the conviction out of him, right? I mean, I, I think a word we used a lot last season and saying, man, I wish we would see a little bit more conviction. He throws 96, 97 from the left side. And I think you're seeing that with him now. You're just seeing a guy that's so confident that, I mean, I saw in that battle where he faced Bryce Harper and he just dotted like two fastballs and then throws that nasty breaking ball pitch to strike him out. And it's like, you see it. I mean, you see the the bouncing off the mound, right? I mean, when he strikes a guy out, you just see the, the swag a little bit. Um, and you're, I mean, you see it a lot more this season. And, and I think that comes with confidence, obviously, and, and him doing well and, when you're going through those stretches like that, I mean, it's it's a, it's a feeling where you you know, like you come into the stadium and you you throw your first warm up pitch and you're like, all right, I'm going six seven strong tonight. Like you just know it, you feel it, and and it's a good place to be in. I mean, I was a lot, I was there a lot in 2011, and I just remember you know riding hot streaks where I was like, man, I, I just no matter what I throw, even if I miss with the pitch, it doesn't matter. They're not going to hit it, and if they if they miss it. And it's even better for me because it helps me set up the next pitch. And you just see the confidence with Kikuchi. And, and you're, again, I mean, a guy that, that we had so many high hopes for last year. And he, and he took a lot of criticism, a lot of criticism by everyone. And, you know, even to the point where they're like, release him, send him down to AAA. And now, I mean, he's probably been one of the saviors of this rotation. And, 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 and the fact that he's going out there, he's giving the team quality innings and, and a chance to win every night. I mean, when you, when, when you win a two to one ball game, I mean that's that's about a I mean other than a one nothing game, that's about as low sco- low scoring as it gets. And uh, I mean just keeping the team in the game, you just don't sense that there's a sense of panic at any moment for him. It's like if he gets a couple man on, it's like all right, I bear down and I and I'm gonna bury my pitches. And you're just seeing that out of him again. So cool to see. I mean he's finally using all the tools in his toolbox and 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 I mean you know with success comes confidence and he definitely has that right now. 
you mentioned at, at times last year there was talk of, hey, maybe this guy needs to go down to AAA and figure things out a little bit. That has now happened to Alec Manoa. I, I know when Manoa was struggling early in the season, Ricky, you and I, I talked, and we don't have to go too deep into it here, but he did get to come back. He had six games where, you know, a couple of them were were decent steps forward. He had a, you know, not a, a crazy good ERA, but sub five ERA. It was it was okay. It wasn't, you know, a top five starter in a team making a playoff push. If you're in Alec Manoa's situation, uh, where do you think the focus is now that he's going back down to, to AAA and to start, you know, keep him starting on turn and try to build some momentum? Yeah, I think it's command. I mean, go out there, go down there and, and, and work on your command, work on your pitches. And the biggest thing, and this is uh, speaking from experience, a guy that went down to AAA, I, I said this a few weeks ago, I was like, the biggest thing for him too is for him to go down there and be a good example too. If he's sitting there and he's bitter and he has the wrong attitude and you know and he acts like he doesn't want to be there and stuff like that, then you know you're you're there you're you're you make it miserable for yourself. But if you set a good example, not just for yourself but for everyone else around you, and as much as it stinks and you're not flying, you know, in a charter plane, you're not staying in five star hotels or anything like that. It, I mean, it just kind of brings you back a little bit to like reality and say, you know what? This doesn't last forever. It really doesn't. I mean, so that's why next time I get back up to the big leagues, I got to enjoy every single second. I got to work hard. I got to get in that weight room. I got to get, you know, in that computer room. I got to, you know, every side session is becomes that much more important. And everything around, like everything that, that consists of being a big leaguer just becomes that much more important. And I think for Alec is, is you know, you know, for right now, it's, it's go down there, work on that command, have the right attitude and, and just go down there and dominate. I mean, and they have the right attitude. And if he's able to do that, I mean, again, we've seen when Alec has been pretty, pretty dominant in his career, and he's pretty damn good. So, I mean, as, as far as right now, obviously, it looks like he was just the odd man out, and um, and you know, sometimes that's just what stinks about it. But a decision had to be made, and it was made. And um, I just, I just hope that he's mentally right, and and he's 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 down going down there with the right attitude, and and not letting anything else get in between what he's trying to accomplish and what he's trying to get to, which is the big leagues. All right. Speaking of tough decisions, Ricky, before I let you go here, your 49ers have a bit of a quarterback competition in camp here. The latest quotes sound like it's going to be Brock Purdy, Trey Lance and Sam Darnold, obviously in the mix as well. How are you feeling about that 49ers situation a couple weeks out from the season here? Ooh, I mean, I like it, man. I mean, Kyle Shanahan, he he knows what he's doing. I, I like it. I like it. I mean, at the end of the day, I, I, we at the end of last season we saw what Brock Purdy could do, and I still say to this day, if if he was healthy in that NFC Championship game, I think the 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 result would would have been a lot different, and and um, and we would have had a Kansas City uh, 49ers Super Bowl, but obviously it didn't work out like that. And uh, but you know what, we've talked about this before, Blake. I mean, the window for the 40, this 49er team is closing soon, and, and and I mean they have so much talent on both sides of the ball. I mean, offensively, I mean, when you have McCaffrey, Kittle, Debo, Brandon Ayuk, and now you, you know, you insert obviously Brock Purdy, if he's able to bring that same magic he did from last season, I mean, you, you better watch out offensively and defensively. I mean, we, I mean, it, <laughs> you see what they have out there in Fred Warner, Bosa, and, and the, the rest of the crew. So it'll be interesting how they, how they go about it. But man, I, I this, I, I say this year, next year, they got to win a Super Bowl. Please win a Super Bowl. <laughs> well, well, we'll have you on to tee up the Jaguars 49ers Super Bowl in uh, in February, man. That, that's fine. 
All right. <laughs> I'll that, take that matchup. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So would I. Uh, Ricky Romero, uh, talking points with Ricky Romero and Stu Stone, former Toronto Blue Jay. Thanks so much for taking the time out this morning, man. Absolutely, Blake. Anytime. Ricky Romero, uh, 49ers fan, former Toronto Blue Jay, uh, talking points with Ricky Romero and Stu Stone. We mentioned a couple other former Blue Jays in there who were around this weekend. If you're tuning into the Blue Jays game tonight, you can have an opportunity to bid on some events with those people. Russell Martin, you want to golf a round of golf with Russell Martin? You want to golf a round of golf with Joe Carter and Adam Hadwin? Uh, There are a boatload of packages, memorabilia, artwork, et cetera, that you can bid on tonight as part of the annual Sportsnet Jays Care broadcast auction presented by TD. Uh, so throughout the TV broadcast, that'll be hosted by Ivanka Osmak. Uh, you can check out the Jays Care website and the Jays Care social media pages uh, for more. Or you can go to bluejays.com slash broadcast auction uh, to take a look at all of those items up for bid. It's also the last day of a, a pretty big Jays care 50 50. And this is the one that, uh, unless you bought your ticket in person at the stadium, so we don't have your phone number. This is the one that Jose Batista calls you to let you know, uh, you won after they do that draw after tonight's game. So, uh, lots to look forward to with Jays care foundation related stuff tonight, uh, through the power of baseball, Jays care foundation, empowering kids facing barriers across Canada to build character and unlock their potential uh, really great cause always a really fun night on the television broadcast i'm sure we'll be talking about it on the radio broadcast as well uh, bluejays.com slash broadcast auction if you want to find out more uh, if you want to find out more about Aaron Nola and how this phillies team i mean last night gave you all the parallels to the toronto blue jays you needed uh, the stars didn't hit They got contributions from a couple guys low in the order. They got a really good starting pitching performance and they lost two to one. Does that feel familiar to you as a Blue Jay fan at times this year? Probably the only thing the Philadelphia Phillies didn't really do that the Jays have done is uh, have a big negative number in the runners in scoring position because they didn't really put runners in scoring position. Uh, They were 0 for 4. The Blue Jays were 1 for 6. A game that was light on offense. That is potentially the case again tonight with Aaron Nola against Kevin Gosman and two offenses that look a lot better on paper than they have looked in execution. We'll take a break. Tag in Alex Coffey of the Philadelphia Inquirer. We will ask her what is going on with the Phillies bats and maybe Phillies and Jays can come together and figure out their dual runners and scoring position issues. The hope, of course, that the Phillies don't figure that out until after they leave Toronto and the Jays figure it out tonight. Alex Coffey joins us next as Jays Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to JSOC Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That is the new walkout music of Philly's youngster Edmundo Sosa, the team finally convincing him to change his walkout music to that once he found a clean version because he has a two-year-old and he didn't want a walkout song with as much swearing as that has. That's a cute one. Uh, written by Alex Coffey of the Philadelphia Inquirer. She joins us now. Alex, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I am uh, well. The 
push for the from Philly's teammates to get Sosa to come out to that song. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more uh, about that? And I, I guess it's a nice story that he wanted a kid-friendly one, but, I mean, that was the radio edited version. That's, it's, it's pretty clear uh, in between the lines there. Yeah, I know. Um, so it actually didn't start with his Phillies teammates. It started when he was um, in St. Louis with the Cardinals. And it's obvious, you know, it's like his last name is Sosa. The song mentions Sosa, so it's kind of a natural fit. But he is um, just like someone that doesn't curse that much, like in general, just like as a human being, like someone that definitely doesn't like like walk the line of controversial um, when he's like talking to reporters or anything like that. And he also has like a young daughter, as he said. Um, so he didn't want her to hear <laughs> a bunch of curse words when he was walking up to the plate. So um, I don't know why it took him so long to figure out that there was a clean version, but for some reason it took him a while to get to that <laughs> conclusion. And then, when, and then when he did, uh, he changed it. And um, the Phillies fans have been very excited because people have been asking for this for a while. Uh, the walk up to the plate, about the only walking Edmundo Sosa does, the lowest walk rate uh, in all of baseball, but a couple of big hits yesterday. Pretty much the only guy uh, with the bat going yesterday, him and Johan Rojas combining for the Phillies' lone run. Uh, that was all the support that Zach Wheeler would get in that one. But Zach Wheeler was tremendous. And Alex, I know Wheeler had been pretty honest with those of you around the Phillies that he didn't, he doesn't love the six man rotation. He didn't love the extra rest and doing a second side session in between his last start and this start. Uh, do you think that a performance that strong from him maybe convinces him, Hey, rest isn't the worst thing. I don't know. I mean, he's such a, um, you know, he's his own, like, biggest critic. So, of course, when we talked to him, he was focusing more on the uh, season-high um, four walks instead of the fact that he pitched seven one-run innings. <laughs> so, um, so he wasn't too thrilled with his outing overall. Um, but I don't think it's going to change his, you know, his mentality about pitching on shorter or normal or shorter rest. He prefers that as opposed to long rest so i think he would have to throw like a perfect game or no hitter for that to change his mind <laughs> well he'll have to wait because it, it sounds like the phillies are roll with this six man for a little bit here um you you mentioned he's his own harshest critic now he's had a really good year here a 363 era but that pales compared to his first three years as a philadelphia philly he is also in addition to having really strong numbers over these four seasons he's pitched more than just about anyone in baseball over that stretch um, this is year four of a five-year 118 million dollar deal the phillies signed him to i mean could he have been any better than than what the phillies were hoping for over these last couple of years yeah, I mean, I think he's been he's been someone that they can turn to, someone that's reliable, that they know what they're getting every five days, or in this case, every six days. Um, and I think the thing that's interesting with him this season in particular is um, just the types of pitches he throws. He induces a lot of weak contact. And that combined with, like, Schorber in left field, you know, like hmm. shallow blue pits usually fall. Like, you can't get to them in time. And that's obviously not a knock on Schorber. He's just, like, not physically able to, like, reach them um and then you know the Phillies infield is still you know statistically one of the lesser infields defensive infields in baseball so that doesn't do either um Wheeler any favors or Aaron Nola any favors so um I always look at their outings and their 
their um, ERAs and their season statistics with a grain of salt just because I do think that the defense factors into those two guys specifically more than it might with other pitchers because they're not going to just, like, blow you away. That makes sense. They induce a lot of, like, weak contact. It does make sense, and we saw it uh, in action in the eighth inning last night with that Whit Merrifield liner to Kyle Schwarber that I think probably 95% of the left fielders in baseball uh, come up with. Um, I wanted to stick on on pitching, but while we're here – I know Brandon Marsh is is starting the ramp up back. Is there a scenario, and and I know Bryce Harper's injury, this wasn't the plan to have Schwarber out there every day. Bryce Harper's uh, Tommy John surgery and his need to play DH and first base primarily changed things for this Phillies team. But as we head into the high leverage games in September and certainly the playoffs, are there scenarios where Kyle Schwarber is going to lose some late game playing time because they just can't afford that risk? Yeah, I think so. I mean, short, or Marsh coming back will provide some, like, you know, obviously some versatility there. But for the first time in a long time, they actually have a really, like, really good defensive, like a lot of depth in the outfield, which isn't something that they've had for a while. Um, for the past few seasons, um, center field was kind of this, like, gaping hole where they didn't know what to do, and everyone dreaded when a fly ball was hit to center field and even, like, a routine fly ball. <laughs> Um, and now they have Christian Pache, who's coming back from um, from injury soon. And then uh, Johan Rojas is, you know, he's a rookie, but he's statistically one of the better center fielders in baseball, at least since he's been called up. So, so yeah, they feel good about that position. And then Marsh will, you know, I think that that definitely plays into, like, Schwarber's playing time for sure because they want to get him off his feet. Um, they want to slide him in at DH as much as they can. So, um so, yeah, definitely Marsh would expedite that process. So one of the boons to the outfield one of the boosts they've gotten has been Johan Rojas, who had, uh, you know, for as much as we can put any faith in minor league numbers, he was the best defensive outfielder in the minor leagues. They have him skip AAA altogether on the way to helping this team. Um, what kind of a boost has Rojas been able to give them? And obviously small sample with the bat, but is there some hope that he'll be able to hit at this level capably as well? Yeah, I think so. Um, they've done a lot of work with. I mean, they they knew what they had when pretty pretty early on when um, when they you know when he entered the minor league system and stuff, and they've been working on cleaning up his bat pass um, throughout his time at Double A, and also recently um, he's been working with hitting coach Kevin Long. So they've been chipping away at that, and I think we've seen some early results, but it's also like a really small sample size, so a little bit too too early to say one way or another. Um, but I do think that a guy like that who's making these leaping grabs, diving grabs, catches at the wall, robbing home runs, I think that he, you know, injects an energy into the rest of the rest of the lineup and the rest of the team, honestly. Um, and he just really doesn't seem phased by, by the moment that he's in or the level that he's in. He's just kind of gone out here and done the same kind of stuff that he was doing at double A, um, and he just makes it look, he makes it look easy, which is a cliche, but it's true. <laughs> so. So, so Alex, we're, we're here and I, I've let off kind of with Edmundo Sosa and Johan Rojas. Uh, it is always, especially over the course of 162, it's great to get boosts from young players coming up or unexpected contributors. But the fact that after a game day, I'm leading with those guys and not any of the big names in the Phillies lineup, is that kind of par for the course for this season where Obviously, the pitching staff's been the pitching staff, but it really does feel like the Phillies have had a similar year to the Blue Jays in that, um, you know, the offense hasn't 
guys haven't necessarily been bad, but maybe not to the level that we expected from some of the star players. Is that a fair way to sum up the Phillies offensive season? Yeah, I'd say so. Um, and I do think that it has ripple effects on the entire team. You know, everyone feels like they have to be that much more perfect when there isn't a lot of like an offensive gap. You know, the pitchers feel like they have to, you know, throw the perfect pitch and defense has to make every play. You know what I mean? It just puts like a level of pressure on the rest of the team. Um, and for a while, one through five, the top of their lineup just really wasn't slugging the way that they were. Um, this sounds bad, but like advertised when, when some of these players were signed, like Trey Turner scuffled for a really long time. And recently um, I think he was on like a 10 or 11 game hitting streak. So he kind of found his stride a little bit. Um, You know, it's weird because (laughs) on Friday, the Phillies absolutely Hmm. shelled Dallas Keuchel, which I get is like, you know, it's Dallas Keuchel. He's not the pitcher that he was (laughs) beforehand, But, but there was a lot of optimism that, you know, this is kind of what they envisioned and this is what the offense should look like. And maybe this is a turning point for them. And then over the next three games, they've combined for two runs um, and have abysmal numbers in scoring position, which I don't remember off the top of my head, but it's bad. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's, um, it's just been very inconsistent. And every time it feels like they're kind of turning a corner, they're like, not so fast. Like we scored 13 runs yesterday, but we're going to, get set out the next day and then score two runs over our next three games. So, so yeah, that, um, that stems from the top of the lineup. Um, and, uh, it's unclear like why they, they, the group are struggling as much as they are, but, um, I guess hitting comes in bunches and, when they're not hitting, they're like all not hitting. And again, to, to draw the parallels to the Blue Jays, the Blue Jays, not this Sunday, but last Sunday, scored 13 runs and then only scored 13 over their next six games total. Uh, so, yeah, it's a it's a little familiar here as well. I, I know it's not fair to hang it on Bryce Harper, given how quickly he came back and the fact that he's in addition to the UCL stuff been dealing with some back stuff. But is he kind of, you know, a an avatar for what's going on here. I, I know through July, there were some hope that he was coming around. He hit three thirty over like a 24 game stretch. And then the back flares up yeah. and suddenly he's, you know, he looks out of sorts again. He looked very uncomfortable at the plate yesterday. It is, I, I know it's not fair to say the Phillies go as Bryce Harper goes because there are a lot of guys here, but it, it at least feels like that a little bit spiritually. Yeah, I think so. Um, the weird thing with him is that he was, you know, for the most part, he was, like, taking good at-bats, hitting for average, um, just not hitting for power, like, at all for for a lot of this season. And um, and recently, around that, like, 13 home or 13 run game area, um, he was starting to hit the ball a lot harder, hit a few home runs. So people were, again, people were kind of optimistic. Um, you know, they chuck up the last few games to just facing really good pitching, um, especially with the Blue Jays. It's like you're facing Kikuchi, and then you don't really get – a break when you go to the bullpen <laughs> because the bullpen has a ridiculously low ERA collectively. So, um, so that is what they're saying to us, but obviously like, you know, crazier things have happened. Like, you know, everyone makes mistakes and you know, when those mistakes come across the plate, you kind of have to capitalize on them. So, um, so yeah, it's, uh, I definitely think that he, he's kind of like, you know, like emblematic of, of this issue, you know, and it's, it's unfair because you're right. He is coming back from surgery and he did beat that timeline and we should be grading him 
um, on a curve, but he's also Bryce Harper. And I feel like we've been conditioned to kind of expect like, like, you know, the unusual from him or the miraculous from him. Like we kind of, we just expect more because he's, he's uh, exceeded our expectations so many times. And he probably will again, whether it happens this year or it's just, you know, someone will write him off and then in his early thirties next year or the year after he'll be Bryce Harper again as a DH first baseman or something like that. Uh, Yeah. Just, uh, you know, you lose the, the confidence that maybe it's going to come this year specifically. Uh, so tonight, it'll probably be another pitcher's duel, Aaron Nola against Kevin Gosman. I know that Nola hasn't had, you know, as sharp a season as he's had in the past. Uh, before we get into some of that, though, Nola's also kind of a major league rarity right now in that, first of all, he gets to the majors like a year after being drafted, but this is his ninth year with the Phillies. He spent his entire career in the Phillies organization. How much does he mean to that team and the city of Philadelphia, just having been this pretty rare for 2023 Phillies lifer? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, the city has a complicated relationship with him because he's kind of spanned all these, um, all these different eras of Phillies baseball, some of them not so great. And um, and I think the fans kind of see him as like a source of frustration. You know, he's someone that he wants to pitch deep in the game, so he's constantly like pitching in the zone. You know, he's not nibbling the corners or anything like that. But inevitably, when you do that, you're going to give up home runs. So um, the knock on him, at least in Philadelphia, has been like he's a guy who will have like one really bad inning and just implode and then – but an otherwise good outing, which is kind of a source of frustration. Um, you know, and I do think part of it stems from the fact that he's not very emotive. Like he just doesn't show a lot of emotion on the mound. So I think that like people see him out there and they assume that he doesn't care or he's not, you know, invested and stuff like that, but he's just not wired that way. I've like talked to him about this before. <laughs> um, so it's, it's a complicated relationship and it's not as like, you know, for someone that's been there as long as he has, um, it's not as rosy as it probably should be. Um, but, but yeah, he's, uh, his big, the big thing with him is just like giving up home runs. And I think that that's been amplified this season, um, just because of like the pitch clock and, you know, him having less time to like collect himself and having to adjust to that. And obviously every pitcher has to adjust to that, but, um, but I think that he's having a particularly tough time with that. Is that something he's spoken about? Because I, I look at the numbers to try to figure out, you know, why is his ERA a, a run and change higher? And it, it kind of looks like there are just a whole bunch of little things that have gotten a little bit worse, striking out a couple fewer guys, walking still not a lot of people, but just a, a few more walks here and there, a few less ground balls. And then, yeah, the home run trouble that obviously that was a staple for him early in his career, but we I think we thought he had rounded out of it. Um, how yeah. how has he evaluated the, the season that he's had and to your point um has he talked openly about you know the pitch clock having a, an impact on him uh he describes it as like his season is just inconsistent and i agree with that i think he'll have some great outings and then you know he'll have some that are not you know a little bit more bumpy um and as far as like the pitch clock goes he's talked about how the rule changes like he'll never use them as an excuse but he's you know he's a realist and he'll talk about how like you know, little things like the limited pickoff attempts and, um, you know, the clock with runners on. Like, if you look at his splits with runners on versus the bases empty, um, there's always been a big gap between them in his career. But this year, they're, like, 
as drastic as ever. Um, and I think that that has a lot to do with the, the pitch clock, you know, like not having time to figure out what you're going to do. And, you know, there's this clock dwindling down. And, again, he's, like, totally um, uh, forthright about the fact that, like, every pitcher has to deal with this stuff. But um, but I do think that it's one of those things where, like, every guy kind of navigates it differently. Um, and I don't think that it's, like, necessarily an easy adjustment for him. So. And you, you mentioned the stuff with runners on. He, he's on pace to clear a career high and how often guys have stolen bases against him. This will be an interesting one yeah. just because the Jays have some of the same issues as the Phillies hitting with runners in scoring position. They haven't been super aggressive on the bases. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. The other thing that, that strikes me with Nola, Alex, is he has pitched more since, if we go back to like 2017, he's basically pitched more than anyone in baseball. Is he a guy you think would would stand to benefit as the Phillies go to the six-man rotation down the stretch here? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And he takes pride in that, and that's why he, like, that's why he's kind of this, like, old-school type of pitcher who doesn't like to, you know, he, like, he likes to throw strikes, you know what I mean? Like, he's, he's that's, like, his M.O., um, and that allows him to pitch deeper into games and log more innings and, um, and yeah, it's something that he's proud of, but it also comes with a, in his case, it also comes with a cost, which is like the home run. <laughs> so, yeah. So Alex, I'm going to bookend this uh, conversation with foul language that we're going to uh, censor out. So uh, yesterday you tweeted a photo and I'm sorry if I'm spoiling a story before it comes out, but Jeff, no, Jeff Hoffman. Uh, who was a Blue Jays first round pick and was traded as part of the Troy Tulowitzki deal has bounced around is now with the Phillies has F a H written on his glove, which is a certain word uh, to all hitters. And I, I know you suggested maybe he make it PH instead of uh, the F word to, to fit in with the Phillies there. Um, have you gotten a, a chance to know Jeff Hoffman a little bit? What has clicked for him this year? Because I think over the years, he's a guy that, um, you know, maybe not immediately after the trade Jays fans don't want him to succeed but now with the benefit of like a, a decade of time uh it's nice to see a guy like jeff hoffman having some success yeah yeah definitely um the reason i tweeted that out was because i wrote a story last year about how the phillies pitching mantra is phah um and jeff actually overlapped with the phillies pitching coach caleb Cotham uh, in cincinnati and in cincinnati it was fah but of course because now we're in philadelphia it has to be <laughs> phah so I just saw that and I was like, oh, I know that. I know that, um, you know, hmm. that mantra or whatever. So I decided to tweet it out. But, um, but yeah, do you see like PHA? It's one of those things where I did not know it was, it was a thing before, um, before Caleb Cotham told me about it. And now that I know about it, I see it everywhere. <laughs> so it's like written on like reports and like um, t-shirts and sweatshirts and all this stuff. So um so it's very much omnipresent, but, um, but Jeff, yeah, Jeff is someone that's really flourished here and he's even been used in like high leverage spots. You know, Thompson has a lot of trust in him. Um, and the big change for him has been just, it sounds cliche, but just like trusting his stuff and not being afraid to, um, you know, throw it in the zone, like kind of challenge guys to, to hit it rather than being like too cute. Um, so he said that that's kind of been the main focus in his work with, with the pitching staff here. And obviously it helps that there's like a little bit of familiarity coming in with Caleb Cotham and everything. Um, so yeah, all in all, it's been a really 
really good fit for him. That's great to hear. And it's uh, now that you tell me that, it does ring a bell that I, I think I actually did read that story already. So um, nice to see the the callback and the throwback there. Nice to see Jeff Hoffman having some success. Uh, Alex, looking forward to seeing you down at Rogers Center uh, a little later. Thank you for taking the time out this morning. Yeah, of course. See you later, Blake. Alex Coffey of the Philadelphia Inquirer. Make sure to check out all of her stuff and her Twitter feed at by Alex Coffey uh, for the Phillies side of tonight and uh, coming out of tonight's game. It's Nola against Gosman. But before we get to Nola against Gosman, at 1 o'clock today, a couple of Blue Jays will be in action for the Buffalo Bison. So if you're not doing anything, if you're trying to you know check some box scores while you're killing time at work, you might see Bo Bichette as the designated hitter for the Buffalo Bisons. That game's at, at 1 p.m. We are expecting Trevor Richards and Chad Green to also get working in that game. Um, there is conflicting, uh, depending on where you look on the Bisons website, conflicting information about who's starting, but Richards and Green aren't the starter either way. It's Bash or Yinger, uh, depending on where you look. But Bo Bichette, uh, he has the jersey. They've tweeted the photo out uh, in his locker, Bichette on the Bisons jersey, which I, I've always said that, or I always thought rather that, those are such cool Holy Grail uh, items. If you're like a baseball fan who lives in Buffalo and, and there's not a pro team, whether you're a Jays fan or not as a Buffalo person, you get the rare Bichette, hey, on a uh, rehab assignment uh, Bison's jersey. It's probably uh, a pretty cool collector's item to have there. So we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, I'd imagine we get the timing might not work out entirely to get a John Schneider update coming out of that game because John Schneider usually speaks around four. Well, we'll see, but Bo Bichette taking the next steps toward his return DHing today, Trevor Richards and Chad green expected to get in to that game as well. And then we'll see uh, when the lineup comes out tonight, if Matt Chapman and Danny Jansen are back in the mix for the blue Jays, Kevin Kiermaier also getting pretty close to a return. Uh, if you are looking ahead to tonight's matchup already. Aaron Nola, again, not having the best of years. Strikeout rate down a little bit. Walk rate up a little bit. Home run rate, once again, a problem like it was much earlier in his career. He'd kind of gotten away from that, um, but he is back to giving up the long ball, and that's especially troubling when his ground ball rate is down because there are more fly balls, and those fly balls are leaving the park more often. There are still some positive indicators in Nola's profile, though, for the Jays to be aware of. First of all, he's another one of those guys. He's not as tall as Wheeler, but he's another one of those guys who gets really good extension down the mound. So a fastball that, you know, you see the radar reading of 93. Well, it's up in the zone, and he's getting pretty far down the mound. It might play up more like 94, 95, not quite to the extreme that Wheeler has it. Um, but it's also not his primary pitch. He's the rare pitcher who throws his curveball as his number one. That's true against righties. That's true against lefties. Uh, he'll mix in a sinker with that fastball. So two different fastballs to stay on top of. Lefties will see a lot of a changeup. Righties will see a lot of a cutter. Um, none of those pitches has been unbelievably effective this year. The curveball has a nice swing and miss rate on it and, and reasonable stats against the fastball. Uh, it's hard to get to by the standards of a fastball, but you can put a charge into it if you do. It's also one of those ones, as we've seen and talked about a bunch, with kind of the the higher or rising fastballs, you're going to get some weak contact in the air. Uh, Nola has struggled to keep that in the park, though. Doesn't walk a lot of guys. 94th percentile chase rate, so still pretty good at getting guys to expand 
outside of the zone. I think a lot of that is how well he locates the curveball low and away to righties, kind of breaking out of the zone. Uh, the changeup low and away to lefties. Uh, pretty pinpoint location with those two pitches, and those are right on the spots where you'd induce uh, a fair amount of guys just expanding just outside the zone, not dissimilar to Kevin Gosman's splitter, which he locates. I mean, he doesn't locate his in the zone nearly as much. It's almost always uh, just below the zone and just out of reach, but because it pairs so well with that fastball that he can steal strikes with uh, good luck. There are, there have been a couple teams who are able to stay disciplined enough to just stay off anything low. And then eventually Kevin Gosman makes an adjustment. And he starts stealing a lot of low strikes with the fastball. So always a fun cat and mouse game there when Kevin Gosman is on the hill. We'll keep an eye on those updates at a Buffalo a little later We'll certainly uh, update you for the radio broadcast and on Twitter about some of those injury updates for the Blue Jays. Uh, We will be back in this spot at 10 a.m. tomorrow for Jays Talk Plus. And if you need a little bit more Jays coming up later, Blair and Barker at 5 to 7. They also have Jays Talk for you postgame. A little sneak peek ahead to tomorrow. Ernie Clement will join us uh, from the Buffalo Bisons uh, in addition to our usual uh, group of guests. Should be a fun one tomorrow. Uh, thanks to Alex Coffey for coming on today, to Ricky Romero and Ryan Goins, to Arden Zwelling, who you can check out on this Jays broadcast tonight on television and uh, this upcoming road trip as well. And we'll see if he gets uh, if he gets splashed with any of the water bath uh, tonight down at Rogers Center. Thanks to Jeff Lance and Jennifer behind the glass. Thank you to list, for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow at 10 a.m. Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360.